Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'd like to thank you for joining us today because this is going to be a really special class. This is coming to the end of our group learning program where we have been studying this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And we're going to be restarting this program in a matter of just a few weeks. But now that we're coming to the close of this program, what I typically like to do is kind of refresh everybody's memory of things that we taught towards the beginning of the program. Breathing mindfulness meditation is taught at the very beginning of this program as a four-part series, which is actually going to start in April. So about another four weeks from now, we're going to be doing that four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation, a four-part series on loving-kindness meditation, and a four-part series on Buddhist chanting. But since we've did, done that so many months ago, and we've just been meditating all the way through now, what I'm going to be doing today is kind of a refresh of breathing mindfulness meditation for anybody who has been in this program for a while and needs that refresh or for anyone who's joined us uh, since we actually did that. You may have joined us in the last few weeks or the last month or two and you never actually learned breathing mindfulness meditation fully the way that I actually teach it as part of this program. So I'm going to use today's class as a way to refresh you and really go into some of the details of breathing mindfulness meditation to help build up your practice because it's so pivotal for our practice, this path to enlightenment. If you weren't using breathing mindfulness meditation, you wouldn't be able to experience enlightenment. But also, attaining enlightenment isn't only doing breathing mindfulness meditation either. So a practitioner is going to need a very well-developed practice of breathing mindfulness meditation. So that's why I cover this multiple times. And at the very beginning of the group learning program, I cover it in a four-part series to really ensure that beginning students are really deepening their practice and building it up from the beginning. So once again, I'd like to welcome all of you to our class. I'll be pausing at different times in order to allow you to ask any questions as we go. And most likely towards the end, we're going to have some time to actually do breathing mindfulness meditation together as a group. But first, let's go ahead and move into discussing the teachings of the Buddha as it relates to breathing mindfulness meditation. The way that I like to share teachings is I'm not interested in students believing anything that I have to say and not even believing anything that the Buddha has to say either, because belief isn't going to actually lead to enlightenment. Instead, what you do is you learn, reflect, and practice the teachings, and then as you do that, then you see the truth for yourself that it's improving the condition of the mind. Because the cause of discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. 
That's the cause. All the anger, sadness, frustration, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, all these discontent feelings and others are all being caused by your own mind. So by training your mind, you can move it to this enlightened mental state, which is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. But you wouldn't be able to do that with belief. Instead, you need to learn the teachings like in a class like this or through the other resources that I offer. You then need to reflect on those teachings and probably seeking some guidance for clarification during that time. And then you need to start practicing, actually doing the work in your day-to-day practice. And even there, you're probably going to need to circle back at different times and get more clarity and seek guidance by asking questions. And through this process of learning, reflecting, and practicing while seeking guidance with a teacher, you're going to gradually see the truth that the condition of the mind is improving. So rather than believe me that Gautama Buddha even taught meditation, that's pretty obvious and most people really know that, but rather than even believe that, what I like to do here with breathing mindfulness meditation and introducing it is just share with you just a few of the words of the Buddha as it relates to meditation. And I dedicated an entire book to this, volume seven in this book series, The Words of the Buddha, are all the most important and consolidated teachings of the Buddha on breathing mindfulness meditation. But here are just a few words so that you don't even have to believe me that the Buddha actually taught breathing mindfulness meditation. And you don't have to believe me about the importance of breathing mindfulness meditation, but instead you can see it in his own words. Here's some of his words. He says, meditate monks, do not be complacent, lest you regret it later. This is my instruction to you. Because if you're not meditating and you are complacent, then you're going to regret it later when you're sad, when you're frustrated, when you're feeling guilt and shame, when you're feeling bored and lonely, you're going to regret it later because you're going to be sitting around with these discontent feelings and others, and you're going to just wish that your mind was further trained than it is. So rather than become complacent when everything's fairly peaceful, everything's fairly relaxed, fairly content and joyful. Instead, you just stay consistent and dedicated and determined and diligent on your meditation practice. Continue to meditate and continue to evolve the mind to this enlightened mental state where it's permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, or else you regret it later. The other thing that he might have been saying here too is as part of this cycle of rebirth, if we don't experience enlightenment in this life, we will be reborn into another realm of existence, which is not ideal. There's going to be continuous rebirth until we get to enlightenment. So this is probably one of the only places that I see the Buddha kind of giving just a little bit of a nudge. And this is like the Buddha's way of doing that is just saying, you know, don't be complacent lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So he's not using guilt or shame or fear to motivate you, but just helping you to understand the truth that when you experience discontentedness and or if you experience rebirth, you're going to regret having not meditated. So he uses these words as a way to encourage and support and motivate us in our meditation practice. He also shares this word. It's part of a longer teaching where he says, A pot without a stand is easy to tip over. So the pot is the mind. The stand is your meditation practice. 
So a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. So the mind is going to easily become discontent without a meditation practice. And the more you meditate, the more you develop your practice, it's like making that stand wider and wider and wider. If you're just starting to meditate or you haven't meditated in the way that the Buddha teaches, then you have a very small stand or maybe no stand at all. It might just be like a little dowel rod and it's easy to tip that pot over. But then as you learn the Buddha's teachings and you understand the way he taught meditation and you develop that practice more and more, this stand gets wider and wider and wider and wider. And now that pot on that very wide and stable stand of your meditation practice is very challenging to tip over because the mind is well-trained. So a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. But another way to say that is a pot with a very wide, broad, solid stand is not easy to tip over. So that's what you're going for when you're developing your meditation practice is to develop a very well-refined practice that is very consistent and that you do it over an ongoing period of time so that you get this broader and broader stand to support the mind. Therefore, it can remain peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. Once the mind fully eliminates all the pollution, it can get to this enlightened mental state where it no longer experiences discontentedness. Now, here's a a words of the Buddha in one of his discourses where you can see just how much of a priority breathing mindfulness meditation is. He taught it as a number one priority in terms of meditations. There's four different meditations that I teach as part of this path to enlightenment, but in terms of all of them, breathing mindfulness meditation is the highest priority. The Buddha even says in other parts of his teachings that in terms of producing wholesome karma or wholesome results or wholesome outcomes, he says the very best thing you could ever do for your life is breathing mindfulness meditation. As I read this next part of his teachings, it's important that you don't look at these teachings in isolation because you're going to hear the Buddha saying that there's this one thing that leads to enlightenment, which is breathing mindfulness meditation. But there's also all these other things that you need too. This is his way of essentially showing you and explaining to you and guiding you about how important and how much of a priority breathing mindfulness meditation is. So here's what he says. Monks. There is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. This is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So here he's just saying how much of a priority breathing mindfulness meditation is, and he says this in other ways and other teachings too. He's not saying literally that you only need one thing because he has an entire path to enlightenment, but in terms of What is a real priority? Breathing mindfulness meditation is a real priority because in order to get to enlightenment, you need to eliminate discontentedness. What's causing discontentedness is craving, desire, attachment. 
breathing mindfulness meditation is how you eliminate craving desire attachment. It's one of the primary solutions to eliminate craving desire attachment. So since craving desire attachment is the primary problem that's causing discontentedness, breathing mindfulness meditation is the primary solution to resolving that. So here you can see in the words of the Buddha that he absolutely taught meditation and you can see how much of a priority it is for your practice in order to get to enlightenment. And this is one of the benefits of studying with the words of the Buddha, that you're not trying to guess, you're not trying to figure out. You can see exactly what he taught. And there's other parts of his teachings that go into a lot of other detail. That's why I dedicated an entire book of this series to it. So what I'm going to share with you as part of this class is helping you to understand those teachings, but not necessarily using his word by word like this, but really encapsulating what he shares. And then should you ever be interested to dive into what he actually literally said as his own words, that's where volume seven comes in, is that you can see in the words of the Buddha how he said what he said, and then I'm encapsulating that in kind of a summarized version to make it easy for you to digest through learning, reflecting, and then you can start practicing. So some things to think about as you get started on your journey with meditation, kind of some basics or meditation basics that you should keep in mind is let's first be sure that we all have a common understanding of what meditation is. Because of this universal truth of impermanence, even a word like meditation is thought of differently by different people. So one of the things that I do in this book series is if I'm ever going to be sharing a certain topic, I always make sure I define what it is that I'm sharing. I never assume that the definition that I have for meditation is the same definition that you have for meditation. So instead, I put these definitions at the very beginning of chapters to be sure that we're on the same page of what meditation is. So here's how I define meditation. Meditation is a technique to actively train the mind during dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions to eliminate and or cultivate various qualities of mind in the positions of seated, lying, standing, or walking. This is really important to understand because nowadays, so many people think that if they're walking the dog, they're meditating, or if they're gardening, they're meditating, or if they go exercise for a jog, they're meditating, or if they go drive the car somewhere, this is a meditation. While that could be an activity that helps you balance your life and has different things, it's not meditation the way that the Buddha taught. And the reason why it's so important to understand this definition is because if you thought driving the car was meditation, for example, and all you ever did was drove your car thinking that you're training your mind to get to enlightenment, well, how's that going to work out for you, right? It's not going to work out because what meditation is, is and what this path to enlightenment is, is eliminating these unwholesome qualities of mind and arising wholesome qualities. And in order to accomplish that, there's many aspects of this path. So what I'm describing as meditation and what the Buddha described as meditation is this independent, dedicated, purposeful training session where you're actively training the mind to either eliminate and or cultivate various qualities of mind. And you're going to do this either in the seated, lying, standing, or walking positions. 
the Buddha gave us four different positions for meditation because you can't permanently reside in just one position. It's not possible. So that's why we have four different positions. And there's different benefits and pros and cons to meditating in each one of these positions. And as you use each one and you get versed in using each one, you'll decide in what situations do you like which positions of meditation and you can kind of employ these different positions at different times in order to help you. So be sure you understand what meditation is, is it's this active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. So while we're doing gardening, while we're driving a car, while we're riding a bike, while we're exercising or doing any of these other things, these are all great and wonderful activities but they're not a dedicated, independent, purposeful, active training session where you're eliminating certain unwholesome qualities and cultivating certain wholesome qualities. And I'm gonna share with you for each one of the meditations that I teach, which qualities of mind are you eliminating and which qualities are you cultivating? We're gonna share that today in today's class. The next thing in terms of meditation basics is it's so important that you have a meditation teacher. Even if you only talk to your teacher once in a while or you kind of have casual contact with your teacher every once in a while, it's important that as you're awakening the mind and you're experiencing different things, that you can reach out to somebody and ask for help or ask for clarification or even just confirm that you're on the right path. This can be really helpful. You know, In different classes, students will talk about their head feeling like it's gonna explode almost because it feels like the size of an elephant or they'll experience different colors and different lights, all different kinds of things. Students will have different questions about meditation and they need somebody that they can have a relationship with that they can either send a private message to, ask a question in class, maybe schedule some personal guidance or some other way of contacting somebody who's further ahead on the path than you that as you're awakening the mind and you're experiencing different challenges you can reach out to somebody and ask for help there's actually people in the world that don't do that that they just try to learn through youtube or podcasts or books or things like this and they've worked themselves into major problems with the mind because they were just doing this on their own and their mind actually ended up becoming worse than better because they didn't have somebody to reach out to and they kept going and going and going, not realizing and not understanding what they're doing with meditation. And therefore, over a period of one or two years, they were headed down the wrong path and now their mind's actually in a worse condition, having tried to meditate without the guidance of a teacher because they didn't have somebody to reach out to in those problematic situations and things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So it's vitally important that you have a teacher. You're welcome to reach out to me, whether it's in our Facebook group, private message, email, personal guidance in one of these classes, any of the in-person classes that I teach. You're always welcome to reach out and get help in anything that you need, including meditation. It's important to understand that there's these four different meditation positions and you're going to need them in different situations. Kind of like the go-to position for meditation is seated position. When you're first learning, typically you're learning in seated position, either seating on the floor or sitting in a chair or some other place because sitting is kind of a common thing and a lot of people are comfortable and able to sit. 
And that's kind of like the go-to position. But there's also lying. If you're lying on the floor or lying in a bed, I've had situations where I couldn't sit because I had a motorbike accident. And there was even a time where I was hooked up to an IV and I was in the hospital. And luckily I understood lying meditation because I could lay and meditate in the hospital bed, no problem. And then there's also standing and there's walking. And you would employ these at different times. Seated position, like I said, is kind of like the go-to position. But if for some reason you're observing the body is really tight and really tense or your back hurts, you might decide to lay down. And that's a good way to change positions out of seated and lie down. Or if you're in seated position and you notice that you're falling asleep and lying position isn't ideal for you, maybe you would decide to do standing or walking. That's a good way to kind of get the mind invigorated and not just sit there and kind of allow the mind to fall asleep. If you go into seated or lying position and you find out that the mind is kind of overactive and too busy or or the last thing you were be interested to do is actually do seated meditation because maybe you're interested in being more active, maybe you have more high energy, you might go to something like a standing or a walking meditation as a way to help the mind to let go of this extra energy. If you're in any of these positions and you're observing that the body is painful and you're just experiencing pain, 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 it's important to switch your position or switch the body slightly. So if you're in seated position and you feel your hip or your knee or your ankle hurting or your back, you shouldn't just sit there and grin and bear it and breathe through the pain. The pain is the body's way of saying, hey, you need to take some corrective action here. There's some challenges, there's some issues. So don't just sit there in the pain because you're not gonna be able to perform that active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session to eliminate or cultivate various qualities of mind because all you're feeling is pain, 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 pain. So your body position in meditation, it should not be luxurious, but it also should not be painful either. Those are two opposite sides of the spectrum. What the Buddha taught is the middle way. The middle way is in the middle where the body is comfortable. So not luxurious and not painful, but comfortable. And you've got to always be sure that the body is in the middle because as you're going to hear me share is the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. In order to get to the boss, you have to go through the employee. So in order to get to the mind, you have to go through the body. You have to kind of put the body in a relaxing, comfortable position. And then when the body is comfortable, you'll be able to access the mind and and train the mind. But if the body is painful, the employee is not going to want to take you to go see the boss. Or if the employee is too luxurious, right? If the employees are very luxurious, they're not going to be interested to take you to go see the boss either. So you find that middle where it's comfortable. So when the body is comfortable, then you can access the mind very well. And this is an ideal time to be able to train the mind because as part of that body positioning, you would like to have the upper body nice and erect so that it keeps the mind attentive and alert during your meditation. Whereas if the body was very luxurious, then the mind's going to have a tendency to turn off. And if the body is really painful, then the mind's just going to be experiencing pain. So that's why you're looking for that middle where it's nice and comfortable. 
So let me pause here before we go deeper into our class today and see what questions you guys have so far. The way that you ask questions is put those into YouTube, Facebook, or Zoom in the comment section. Our moderators will see that and be sure that your question gets asked during the class and I'll answer it. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and then I'll be able to have one of the moderators call on you and we'll be able to ask any questions or follow up questions directly. Hello, teacher. In the words of the Buddha, you mentioned the word which is Nibbana. Would you mind to clarify the meaning of this word? Yeah, so this is a Pali word that translates over into enlightenment. This is the mental state that a practitioner on the path to enlightenment is working towards to attain enlightenment or to attain Nibbana. I keep that Pali word in there because you're going to see it in different places. But in reality, it just translates into enlightenment. And what enlightenment is, is the mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently no longer experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. And in order to accomplish that, you need to remove craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. These are the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires that are in the mind. And through training the mind through this path to enlightenment, you eliminate that pollution. And then this brilliance and this enlightened mind, this radiant mind can shine through because the mind is no longer polluted with craving anger and ignorance or unknowing of true reality. And these three poisons or these three unwholesome roots or these three fires are kind of like the high level way of understanding the pollutions or the taints that are in the mind. There's a more detailed description that the Buddha describes as part of the 10 fetters. This is the way that the Buddha teaches is he has these different layers that he'll first introduce you to kind of one layer, which is like the three unwholesome roots or the three poisons or the three fires. And then once you understand that, then you dive deeper down and you start understanding that they actually go into 10 individual fetters or 10 individual pollutions of mind. And in order to get to enlightenment, you would need to eliminate all 10 fetters. That's how the mind actually experiences enlightenment. So once we remove this cloak of pollution, once we remove this remnants of all this pollution of mind that's been accumulating over all these births and this entire life, you clear all that out and now the mind is experiencing this peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because the conditions that are causing the unenlightenment, the conditions that are causing the discontentedness, the conditions that are causing this difficulty and struggle in your life have been eliminated. When you eliminate the conditions of craving, anger, and ignorance, now the mind is unconditioned. So now you experience this unconditioned, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The reason why we experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant is that they're conditioned on some craving desire attachment. There's this mental longing and strong eagerness for something. And if you get the objects of your affection, you experience these pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. But the problem is, is that those pleasant feelings are based on some impermanent condition because the mind is conditioned. And now when that condition isn't there, when that condition doesn't exist, now the mind experiences painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. And then there's also these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, like boredom or loneliness or shyness or displeasure 
or unsatisfactoriness. So the unenlightened mind kind of moves about through all these different feelings because it's conditioned with craving, anger, and ignorance. And when you remove these conditions, now the mind is unconditioned. So now it experiences this unconditioned, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy where there's no condition that needs to exist in order for you to experience joy or that peacefulness. There is no condition. If it's raining outside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If it's sunny outside, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If I go to a restaurant and I order a favorite food and it comes, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. If I go to that same restaurant and I order my favorite food and they don't have it, the mind is still peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. Where in the unenlightened mind, you're going to have this condition that if I get the food that I order, I will be happy. But if I don't get that food, now I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to be frustrated because I didn't get the objects of my affection. That's the conditioned mind. That's the unenlightened mind. But the enlightened mind is going to be unconditioned. It can just always reside peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And we call this nibbana or enlightenment. You might even hear the Sanskrit word, which is nirvana. But the best thing to do is just use English, which is enlightenment. Well, so here you're defining uh, meditation as a way to eliminate and or cultivate various qualities of the mind. How can one, while sitting with a chair, be able to eliminate and cultivate some qualities of the mind? So once you understand what the problems are, and that's what the Buddhist teachings are explaining, is they explain the problems that are hindering the mind from experiencing enlightenment. Then he explains the solution to the problems. Then he gives you the path of how to practice in order to experience the benefits of improving the condition of the mind. So part of the techniques and part of this path is understanding the problem, understanding the solution, and then implementing those solutions, which meditation is part of that. So what I do is at the beginning of the group learning program is I walk you through the entire eightfold path in three part series so that you can deeply understand the problem. You can deeply understand the solution and then you can understand the solution going forward. Because once you have that understanding, then not only are you training the mind in meditation, but there's also things you need to be doing outside of meditation as well. This is why you wouldn't be able to just meditate your way to enlightenment. Meditation is a key and vital, important part of our path to enlightenment, but it's not the only part. So you really need to think about training your mind as like a full-time job, that you're training your mind in meditation, yes, two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more, but even when you're driving down the road, even when you're having a discussion with your children, even when you're talking with your boss, even when you're sitting on a train or sitting at a bus stop by yourself, even when you're at work by yourself, laboring away at work, when you observe certain thoughts that are coming up in the mind at that time, you need to also be actively training your mind. So when someone understands more of what the problem is, Bossum, and understands the solution, then you can understand how to implement it. For right now, based on what I've said so far, it's better to just understand what meditation is. And then when we go forward in today's class, I'm gonna explain more of the problems and then what the solutions are to those problems. And that's where you'll be able to see 
how meditation transforms the mind away from these unwholesome qualities towards these wholesome qualities. Well, you also mentioned that uh, walking the dog is not a kind of practicing meditation. Uh, what's the difference between walking the dog and this uh, uh, meditation position, which is walking? Right. So when you do walking meditation, there's a active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session where you're staring at the ground. You're looking about one meter in front of you. That's about three feet in front of you. And you're walking in a very intentional way. You lay your foot out flat and then you transfer the weight. You lay your foot out flat and then you transfer the weight and you hone your focus. And rather than fixate the mind on the breath, like we do in seated meditation or lying or standing, instead you fixate the mind through your eyes to three feet in front of you or one meter in front of you. And you just fixate on that fixed point. You're not worried about what's in front of you, the future. You're not worried about what's on the sides. You're not worried about what's in the past behind you. You just fixate the mind on that fixed spot. And then there's this very consistent, deliberate, intentional walking that you do for about 20, 30 minutes. You can even go upwards of an hour if you like, or more even. And you do this as a way of having a dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. And it's just the body, the mind, and the breath. There's nothing else involved, just the body, the mind, and the breath. When you're out there walking the dog, which is a great thing to do, and it's really fun, and it's relaxing, and it's enjoyable, but it's not this dedicated, independent, purposeful training session where you're deliberately walking with your eyes fixated on the ground. You're out there holding the leash, and you're looking at the trees, and you're saying hi to your friends, and you're breathing in the breeze, and you're watching the trees sway around. You're, you're enjoying the sunshine. That's a, a walk with the dog or a walk with your family or somebody else. And that's a very enjoyable thing to do. But it's not this dedicated, independent, purposeful, active training session, which is done through walking meditation. It's a very specific type of meditation where you're honing the mind and training the mind in that situation. Thanks, Richard. Seems that Jan has her hand raised. That's good to hear. Thank you, Basham. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I have a question about how I can uh, find a, a position I can meditate in when I have some medical issues that are interfering with doing some of the, these four positions. Right now, um, I'm experiencing a condition where if I stand or walk, um, I faint. So it's not safe to do those things. And I'm finding um, I have a different condition. It's called restless leg syndrome. Um, that it's a neurological condition where my legs kick. It's not under my control. And so it's interfering with me doing seated or lying meditation. Um, sometimes my legs kick violently enough that it lifts me off a chair or it lifts me off the bed. So it's very hard for me to focus on my breath. When this happens, my leg is mm -hmm. dancing away. And I, any any kind of guidance, I would really appreciate it. It would be very helpful. Yeah, this is okay. So I used to have some restless legs as well, not as significant uh -huh. as what you're describing. But what I realized is through training the mind, all that went away. It, it went away uh -huh. for me. Um, I didn't experience that anymore. So what you do is you do the best you can, Jan, if you're sitting 
and you're sitting for five, 10 minutes and your legs start kicking, okay, just let them kick, let it go. And then when they're done, you just focus back on the breath and just observe Mm -hmm. that, okay, this kicking, it's temporary. It's five seconds, it's 10 seconds, however long it is, and then go right back to the breath. And this can actually be really helpful to the mind that it gets interrupted during the meditation. And now you have to refocus the mind. So the only problem would be is if you craved or desired to have a 30 minute session with no kicking, that's when the mind's going to be discontent when the kicking starts happening. So when it happens, just observe that it happened. Okay, that's done. It's over with. Let me focus back on the breath again and just view it as impermanence. And then what I think you will probably find is as you train the mind more and more, this will slowly diminish, but you should just observe it as impermanence and just focus on the breath for as much as you can. And then when the legs start kicking and it's over, just go right back to the breath. And if that happens multiple times through your session, then so be it. That's just impermanence. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's go to Miranda for Facebook questions. Yes, sir. On Facebook, Kaylee Kane asks, I'm really new and hearing I need a meditation teacher. I don't know where to look for one in my area. Oh, so if you're learning with me, you can use me as your meditation teacher. It doesn't need to be somebody that's in your local area. I share this with people so that if they haven't been learning with me or they, you know, they're just maybe dropping in for a brief second to listen to something that I'm sharing, that they understand they need a teacher because all too often we're interested in being independent, right? We're, we're interested in, especially those of us that are uh, maybe from America, we're used to being so independent and we think we can do everything by ourselves. But when you understand these teachings, you understand that only a Buddha, only a living, true Buddha is able to actually attain enlightenment on their own. Everyone else is going to need teachers. And the last Buddha that the world is currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. So you're going to need a teacher. And you, if you would like to use me as a teacher, you can find me here in Facebook at Daily Wisdom Walking the Path with the Buddha. You can send me a private message. You can email me. You can WhatsApp. You can ask questions in these classes. You can schedule online personal guidance for free. I offer all these teachings at no cost. So there's a link that maybe Bossom or Miranda can post. Whereas if you would like personal guidance, you're welcome to schedule those appointments. So if you would like to consider me to be a teacher for you, I'm more than pleased to do that. And I have many resources to help you, whether it's books, videos, podcasts, online classes, in-person classes, personal guidance, and things like this. So you don't necessarily need to have someone in person nowadays. During the lifetime of the Buddha, you had to live close to the Buddha in order to learn because they didn't have any other options. But nowadays, the way that we've developed, we're able to learn with people from all over the place because of the internet and technology and computers. So feel free to reach out to me as you need help. Thank you, sir. Also, what should someone look for in a meditation teacher or someone who is going to be teaching them the path to enlightenment? Yeah, this is a wonderful question, and I detail this in chapter three of this first book, volume one, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. I give you about eight different questions to ask any potential teacher if you should happen to be looking for a teacher. And I really wrote this thinking that, okay, 
at some point I'm going to die or this body is going to die and there's going to be people who are reading this book that can't learn with me, but they're going to be seeking guidance from a teacher. And I was interested in giving them guidance of how they could potentially identify a teacher for themselves. So I put eight different questions in there and I even put some answers to consider. But just kind of to summarize a few of those points, but I would really suggest you go look in volume one, chapter three to see the detail. But just to summarize some of those things is you should look for a teacher who's really far on the path, if not already enlightened. And the questions that are in chapter three help you to kind of determine if someone is enlightened or not by asking certain questions and the certain answers that I give. Some things that you should see is you should see somebody who's very generous, who's very giving of their time, someone who's not going to charge you any money, someone who's truly enlightened isn't going to have a price. You know, join my class for $5,000 for five days and I'll teach you how to get to enlightenment. This person still has craving, desire, attachment for money and they're not yet truly enlightened or else they wouldn't be charging a fee for their service. You can ask them questions about what kind of students do you accept and what kind of students do you reject? Because someone who's attained enlightenment should accept all students. It doesn't matter the gender, the nationality, the ethnicity, the sexual orientation, the, their prior background. They should accept all students. You should observe that the person's mind should be very calm, very peaceful. They should be very articulate. They should be very focused. They should be able to focus and discuss the teachings in detail without being distracted to one thing or another. They should be able to be very polite, kind, friendly, and respectful for all people, their students and everybody around them. They should be very respectful. You should see loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. These are described in chapter 14 of the book. You should see the qualities of the enlightened mind being practiced by this individual. And the questions that I give in chapter three really help you to go through that. You can even ask them questions, you know, is it possible to eliminate anger? Is it possible to eliminate sadness? Because if they say no, it's not possible to eliminate anger and sadness, then that means they haven't done it. So they're not quite understanding what enlightenment is. Or if you ask them, is it possible to eliminate grief or guilt or shame or sorrow or boredom or loneliness. Again, if you ask that and they say, no, it's not possible to eliminate those things. And that means they haven't eliminated themselves. So therefore they don't have the wisdom of how to guide you to do that. Or if you ask them questions like, is it possible to eliminate the ego? And if they say, no, it's not possible to eliminate the ego, then that means they themselves haven't eliminated the ego, which means they still have arrogance and pride and judging and measuring and comparing. So therefore, if they haven't yet eliminated the ego, they're not going to be able to guide you in how to eliminate the ego. So you're looking for somebody who understands these aspects, right? And understands the path to enlightenment. And by asking them questions like this, it's not that you're judging them, but if you're going to invest time, effort, energy, and resources to learn from a teacher, you would like to make sure that teacher knows what they're doing and that they're really far on the path because by the time you invest six months, a year, two years, three years studying with this person, if you find out three years down the road that they're not actually enlightened or they don't really have as much knowledge as you thought they did and you see them getting angry and frustrated and irritated, then 
that means you've essentially almost kind of wasted like three years because this person was probably teaching you things that aren't necessarily the truth 100%. Whereas if you can use discernment, wise decision making to just ask questions and listen to the answer, then when you hear that answer, and then at the end of that conversation, you can decide maybe later if you would like to study with this person or not, with this wise decision making, you can make a wise decision about who you choose to study with. And that way, you know, if this person is either enlightened or close to enlightenment, they're going to be able to guide me effectively. And all the time that I spend learning from this person is very valuable and very beneficial and I'm not wasting my time. So you should see the qualities of enlightenment in the individual that you're going to study with. And one of the things you can even do is you can even ask the teacher, are you enlightened? This is a very common question. You can just ask, are you enlightened? And if they say yes, there's a very good chance that they're not enlightened because an enlightened being isn't going to say, yes, I am enlightened because they will have already eliminated any kind of arrogance or pride not interested in professing that they are enlightened, but instead they would be focusing the conversation more on helping you to attain enlightenment. They shouldn't be self-absorbed and arrogant and prideful and walking around with a chip on their shoulder, you know, boasting that they're enlightened because an enlightened being doesn't do that. So if somebody is boastful or very quick or very easy to say that they are enlightened, this is a very good indication that they aren't enlightened. So if you just ask them, you know, after you ask several questions, you can ask them, are you enlightened? And if they say, yes, I'm enlightened, I've been enlightened for the last five years, can't you tell? Uh, you know, this is very arrogant and very prideful and you, you should know like, okay, they still have ego. And so this is probably someone that I'm not going to necessarily be able to learn how to eliminate the ego if they still have ego. So there's these questions and others in there that I provide you. And then I walk you through how to respectfully and politely ask these questions if you're going to perhaps look for a teacher from someone else besides me. And you can even ask me those questions too, if you like. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Kaylee also asks, can you ease my anxiety that med meditation takes practice and I'm doing okay to get rid of my anxiety by breathing and remembering to get in the moment? Yeah, so anxiety is typically fear or anticipation of something in the future. And the mind's kind of apprehensive and having this anticipation of wanting something or craving something, desiring something. So all you need to do is just learn, reflect, and practice. And as you do, the anxiety will slowly, gradually diminish. Yes, meditation, but you're going to need some other things as part of your practice as well. It just takes time. This is another thing. Not only do we try to do things independently, particularly people from America, us Americans, not only do we try to do everything independently, but we also want to be an expert today. We want to snap our fingers and be an expert right now. Like, hey, I just learned how to meditate three days ago. Why am I not an expert yet, right? But in reality, it takes many months, maybe even years to really refine your practice. So understand that the Buddha described the path to enlightenment as a gradual progression. One of the big myths and misunderstandings in the Buddhist world is people think that the Buddha sat down under a tree and instantly attained enlightenment. 
but he doesn't say this. In his teachings, he talks about it being a gradual progression. So just like the Buddha took six years to get to enlightenment, it's going to take you some time. So cultivating patience is really important. Patience is a virtue. Good things come to those who wait. So take your time. Know that it's going to be a journey. It's not a destination. It's a journey and it's a wonderful journey. And there's going to be struggles and there's going to be challenges and there's going to be difficulties and things are going to feel uncomfortable sometimes. And then things are going to feel really peaceful. And then they're going to go back to feeling uncomfortable again. And then you're going to feel peaceful and calm again. And then you're going to go back to feeling uncomfortable again. Your mind's going to be doing this for a while, all the way until it gets enlightened. Even in the first, second, third stage of enlightenment, there's still going to be some discontentedness. It's not until you get to that fourth stage where the mind is enlightened that the mind is actually going to be experiencing this complete peace, this complete calm, this complete serenity, this complete contentedness and complete joy. And you might go even in that third stage of enlightenment, you might go six months of complete peacefulness. And then boom, something happens and it shakes up the mind a bit. It's not going to be very intense, but it shakes up the mind a little bit. And then you might go another six months or a year. And then there's a little something that comes in, right? So you work with this path gradually and just know that you're in the right place, that you're with a community of people that are here to help you and support you, encourage you. But you have to have the motivation. You have to have the willingness, the energy, the effort to apply your learning, reflection, and practice, and reach out as you would like to get help. So you're on the right path. It's just a matter of doing it for a long-term consistent period. And if you practice what I share, a lot of students within the first couple of weeks are already noticing benefits. So you'll have indications along the way that yes, what I'm learning with David is actually working because I've only been studying with him for two weeks or one month and I'm already noticing that the condition of the mind's improving. So therefore, let me keep learning, let me keep growing, let me keep evolving, and I'm just gonna see continuous improvement. And that's gonna be gradual, steady, and consistent, but there's gonna be backward steps sometimes. So this anxiety can all be eliminated from the mind. I used to experience that too, and uh, it's all gone. I, I no longer experience anxiety whatsoever. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thanks, teacher. No more questions for now. All right. So let's talk about the different types of meditation and particularly breathing mindfulness meditation and what it is that you're eliminating from the mind and what it is that you're cultivating in the mind. This is really important that you don't under, just understand how to meditate, but you understand what you're doing and why you're meditating. So with breathing mindfulness meditation, this is to eliminate the unwholesome quality of craving desire attachment. Craving desire attachment is the way that the mind has this mental longing and strong eagerness. It's yearning, it's longing, it's wanting the objects of its affection. And then once it gets them, it wants to hold on to them really tightly. So what we're doing is we're actually training the mind to let go. That's the opposite of this mind that is longing for something and wanting to hold on to it really tightly. So what we're doing in breathing mindfulness meditation is we're focused on the breath. And then when the mind goes off the breath, we're cutting that off, letting it go and come back to the breath. 
and then the mind's going to be on the breath for a few seconds, and then it's going to go off the breath again. And then when you observe that, you cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. And then it keeps doing this over and over and over and over again. The mind is on the breath, and then it's off the breath. You let it go, come back, let it go, come back, let it go, come back. And what you're doing is you're actually training the mind to easily let go. You're never going to get to a time in your meditation, even when the mind is enlightened, that you will have no thoughts. This is impossible. As long as you're alive, you're going to have thoughts. You're not actually training to eliminate the thoughts. What you're training to do is train the mind to easily let them go when they arise. So that in meditation, when you're focused on the breath, you're cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind, training the mind to reside in the present moment with concentration through practicing singleness of mind, focusing on a single object like the breath. So we're fine-tuning the mind, we're fixating it on the breath, the single object, the singleness of mind, we're developing awareness of mind, we're aware of the breath, the sound of the breath entering into the body through the nose, and the sound of the breath exiting the body or the sensation of air moving over the skin into the nose. We fixate the mind there. This is developing concentration or singleness of mind. And we start developing awareness of the mind. And now with this awareness and this concentration, whenever the mind moves off the breath, we notice it. Cut it off, let it go and come back. You haven't done anything wrong. You're not bad at meditation, no reason to feel guilty or shameful. The mind just moved off the breath. That's what it does. So now when it moved off the breath, you become aware of it and you cut it off, let it go and come back. And what you do is you start observing sooner and sooner when the mind is off the breath. So when you first start meditating, you might be focused on the breath and then the mind wanders and it goes and it takes you on a journey and it goes around and you might not realize for like five minutes, oh my goodness, the mind is off the breath. Cut that off and bring it back. And then you're on the breath again. And then you're just on the breath, on the breath, and you don't even realize it, but the mind has moved off the breath. And you don't realize it until about three minutes or four minutes. Cut it off, bring it back. Over multiple meditation sessions, you develop this mindfulness and concentration so well that even as you're developing closer and closer to enlightenment, you realize sooner and sooner that the mind's off the breath. So rather than three, four, or five minutes, it's like one second or two seconds or three seconds. You observe the mind's off the breath, cut it and bring it back. But in order to get there, you have to go through this process of gradually training the mind. So if your mind wanders for five or 10 minutes, that's not ideal, that's not what you're looking for. But wherever you become conscious and aware that the mind is off the breath, cut it and let it go. And what you're working towards is to shrink that time down lower and lower and lower so that eventually you get to the point where it's off the breath and half a second, one second, grab it and pull it back. Grab it and pull it back. Grab it and pull it back. Breathing mindfulness meditation, while it's the most impactful, most important meditation, it's actually from a technique standpoint, the most easy because it's very simple. You just focus on the breath. Whenever the mind's off the breath, cut it and bring it back. It's that simple. But in that work, doing that work is the real challenge because the mind is so polluted when you first start, 
you're not going to have the awareness of mind. You're not going to have the mindfulness. You're not going to have the concentration. You're not going to be able to easily let these thoughts go. You're not going to be aware that the mind is off the breath very quickly because the mind is polluted. But just like a muscle, when you're working out in a gym and you got to build up that muscle by doing lots of reps and lots of reps and increasing the weight of the dumbbell more and more, and that builds up the muscle. The same thing with the mind is that when you're doing multiple meditation sessions over multiple weeks and months and you extend them for longer and longer periods, this is just like being in the gym and increasing the amount of reps, increasing the amount of weight on the dumbbell. It's the same thing when you're in meditation, you would like to do two or three sessions per day and build up to 30 minutes or more. Of course, when you first start, you might be at five minutes, you might be at one minute, uh, you might be at 10 minutes. That's fine. That's where you are. But gradually, slowly but surely, you build this up to two or three sessions a day for 30 minutes or more. And that's where you're really exercising the mind and it's becoming more and more refined and fine-tuned. These other styles of meditation, next week on Wednesday, we're going to be talking about loving-kindness meditation. I'm going to go into that one in detail with you guys. That one is to eliminate anger, hatred, ill will, and all the lesser versions, and you're cultivating loving-kindness for all beings. Then there's another two types of meditations that are only used in specialized situations. Everyone's going to need breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation because the primary problems, those high level problems are craving, anger and ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. Breathing mindfulness meditation takes care of craving, loving kindness meditation takes care of anger and then learning, reflecting and practicing takes care of the ignorance or unknowing of true reality by acquiring wisdom. And now you use that wisdom in your meditation practice. So these first two, breathing mindfulness and loving kindness meditation, every practitioner is gonna need those. But then depending on what your experience is and what's going on in your mind, some people might need this meditation to eliminate sexual cravings. Maybe someone who has many different partners and they're having trouble to have just one partner. They would use this meditation to bring their sexual craving down. Or much later in practice, if you're trying to eliminate sex from your practice 100%, you might use this for that. And then as you're getting close to the first stage of enlightenment, you might actually decide to use this fourth meditation, which is a meditation to realize non-self. And this is one that I usually teach on a one-on-one -on -one basis after we make sure that your understanding of the universal truth of non-self is there. And once we know that that understanding of the universal truth of non-self is there, make sure that the understanding of the fetter of personal existence view, make sure you understand what that is and what you're working to eliminate. Then after we've had a few conversations on those things and you're starting to understand it, that would be an ideal time to then start using this other meditation of meditation to realize non-self. But that's typically like a year, year and a half, two years down the road after you've already developed all these other meditations that you need. And these are the only four that anybody should ever need. The first two are the primary two. The other two are just kind of optional and on a case-by-case -case basis. Now, since the lifetime of the Buddha, there's thousands of meditations out there that people have come up with. But these are things that other people came up with. These aren't the teachings of a Buddha. A Buddha's teachings are going to be very clear, very precise, and very concise. They know exactly what it takes to attain enlightenment. 
And by understanding exactly what the Buddha taught and what he didn't teach, this kind of lessens the burden for you that you don't have to go out and learn 20, 50, 100 different meditations. You only need to really focus on these first two, breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. This eliminates the burden of having to learn all these other meditations that aren't part of the Buddhist teachings anyway. And by focusing on just these two meditations, you can really deepen your practice rather than having this really broad, wide practice of like 20, 30, 50, 100 different meditations. Instead, you just focus on these two. You specialize in them, get really, really good at them, understand how they're working to improve the condition of the mind, understand that this is what the Buddha actually taught. And then you can really specialize and get really deep into these and then you'll see how it connects to all the rest of his teachings. But all of these other meditations that are out there, while those people may find those beneficial, it's not what the Buddha originally taught. And what I would suggest for any practitioners, just focus on what the Buddha actually taught because he is the discoverer, the declarer, and the originator of the path to enlightenment. Essentially, he's the one who invented this path. And that's who you're interested in learning from is the words of the Buddha and understanding exactly what he taught, because that's what's going to lead to enlightenment. All these other changes and modifications and things that people have come up with over 2,500 years of impermanence, those things are not what the Buddha taught. And they're just going to complicate things and make it very difficult for you because it makes the path really murky and very muddy and very difficult to understand because those aren't teachings that the Buddha actually shared. So by refining your practice on exactly what the Buddha taught using the words of the Buddha, then you'll know what the originator, the discoverer, and the declarer of the path to enlightenment taught. And then you can see the truth for yourself that it's actually working. So let me just pause here for a moment and see if you guys have any questions on anything that I just shared. Not seeing any questions teacher for this time. I see Chris just rose his hand. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's look at him. Thank you, Teacher David. I have a question. Is it common early in meditation practice that while you're able to go for a longer length, that sometimes mind or um, different thoughts come in while you're meditating more frequently? So you're able to pull back but the mind is engaging outside thoughts more frequently? Is that sort of like your mind clearing itself of the toxins? Yeah, there's something like that. Yeah, there's so much bundled up in the mind that when you first start meditating, it's like bombardment. You know, we're not really taught growing up as most cultures, unless you grew up in a culture like here in Thailand, we're not taught to just sit with our own thoughts we're taught to typically bury our thoughts and we kind of sweep the thoughts under the carpet, the proverbial carpet, right? And what we're doing with meditation is we're pulling the carpet back and all the dust is flying all over the place. And we're oftentimes very bombarded with thoughts early on in our practice. So this is very normal and it can take a certain amount of time. Everybody's a little bit different, but it can take a, a significant amount of time to really clear that out because not only have you been burying your thoughts for all of this life, but there's been multiple lives before this that the mind has just been burying and burying and burying and accumulating and accumulating. And now we've got this big mountain of dust under this carpet and we're pulling that back and the dust is flying and 
yeah, we don't like it. So it's very normal, but if you stick with it, you'll get better and better and you'll notice the mind will quiet. But part of that getting better is refining your practice. And that's why I'm taking the time to go through these teachings today so that you guys can really refine and hone in what you're doing in meditation. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Sishon. No more questions. All right. So now going through kind of more in depth about how to actually conduct your meditation session is the first thing, like I mentioned earlier, is the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. Always remember this, that the mind is the boss, the body is the employee. For example, if you're going to hit somebody in the face, which we might have done at some other time in our life, if we do that, the body is just following what's in the mind. It's the mind that has the craving to hit this person. It's the mind that has the anger. It's the mind that has the ignorance. And now the mind is telling the body, hit that person, right? So the body is just following along with whatever's in the mind. So our goal on this path to enlightenment is to train the mind. Because if we can purify the mind, then we will see that our intentions, our speech, and our actions can also be purified. So our meditation practice is to train the mind. And by understanding that the mind's the boss and the body's the employee, then you can understand to get the body into a comfortable position, not luxurious, not painful, but a comfortable position, and then it'll take you to go see the boss. So that's really important. The Buddha talks in his teachings about setting up mindfulness in front of you. Mindfulness is awareness of mind, having awareness of mind. And when you have awareness of mind, then you can actually eliminate unwholesome qualities and you can arise wholesome qualities. If you're not aware of what's in the mind, then how could you ever purify the mind? I call this walking through the forest, knocking down the trees and burning up the forest. That's essentially what we do when we're off this path before we really learn this path is we're knocking down all the trees in the forest and we're burning up the forest because we don't have mindfulness. We don't have awareness of mind. So therefore, we can't restrain the mind. We just kind of almost vomit on the world and we go through with our intentions, speech and actions, very hostile, very aggressive, very demeaning sometimes. And we have these speech and actions that cause harm in the world and therefore harm comes back to us. So as part of your meditation, as part of this entire path, you're always interested in cultivating mindfulness or awareness of the mind. Because if you're aware of the unwholesome qualities, then you can take some action to eliminate them. And if you're aware of the wholesome qualities, then you can take some action to support them, encourage them, and don't allow them to fade. But if you didn't have mindfulness or awareness of mind, you wouldn't be able to do that. So before you go into meditation, you're not interested in just plopping down and meditating or just boom, go into meditation. You're interested in kind of setting up this mindfulness in front of you is what the Buddha said. Start cultivating awareness. So maybe you come into the house, you take off your jacket, you take off your shoes. Maybe you go empty the organs in the bathroom or something like that. Maybe you just take a little sip of water to make sure your mouth's got a little water. It's up to you. You decide. Each session's a little bit different. Some people might decide to do some chanting, and that's helpful to kind of ease the mind into meditation. Some people might choose to use prayer if you're into prayer, and that's something that you'd like to use. Some people like to use yoga or some breathing exercise or something like this. Whatever it is for you, everybody's going to be a little bit different, but you should start bringing some awareness to the mind so you're not just plopping down in meditation. That would be setting up mindfulness in front of you. 
Then in terms of time, frequency, and schedule of meditation, it's important to understand that you're not going to be able to have a permanent schedule of meditation. Oftentimes what we try to do when we first start out on this path is we say, okay, every morning at 8 o'clock I'm going to meditate, and every night at 8 p.m. I'm going to meditate, and that's when I'm going to meditate. And you try to lock it in. Well, universal truth of impermanence, it's not going to happen. And then when it doesn't happen, you start feeling guilty. You start feeling shameful, right? So don't try to lock in a fixed schedule. You might put some placeholders in your day that, okay, I'm going to generally try to meditate in the morning, probably around eight o'clock, give or take, whenever that happens. And I'm going to generally try to meditate in the evening, perhaps, right? If you're having a twice a day schedule, but don't try to lock in a fixed schedule because that's craving permanence and that's only going to lead to discontentedness, but instead have these anchor points. The Buddha meditated morning, midday, and evening. And remember, he didn't have a watch. He didn't have a watch 2,500 years ago, so he didn't know to meditate at exactly 8 o'clock. So if you see somebody tell you that you have to meditate at exactly 3.30 a.m. in the morning, and that's the best time to meditate, well, the Buddha didn't do that. So why is somebody sharing that today? It's because of that ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. The Buddha didn't have a watch to tell what time it was. So in his teachings, he says, I meditate morning, midday, and evening. So that's kind of a general schedule for you. Don't have this fixed schedule, but kind of have these anchor points. And if you start out with just morning and that's what you do, okay, that's where you start once a day. But then you'd like to kind of gradually build up to where you're doing twice a day maybe morning and evening. And then if you build up even further, you might even be able to get a meditation in the middle of the day. But twice a day is ideal. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment with meditating just once a day. If you did that consistently for multiple years, you wouldn't be meditating quite enough to actually transform the mind to enlightenment. You're going to need to at least get to twice a day. So that would be ideal to get to that. And if you can slip in an occasional third or depending on how your life is organized, if you can consistently do three meditations a day, outstanding. You're going to see the most benefit with that because that's what the Buddha did. And you'll see that the progression of the mind will improve a lot better when you're doing two or three meditations a day for 30 minutes or more. And once again, if you're starting at one minute, five minute, 10 minute, that's fine. Just do that. And then gradually what you're going to observe is that the mind's going to benefit from this meditation more and more, and it's going to be more likely to extend your meditation more and more. You're not actually interested in timing your meditation in terms of an alarm. It's not wise to set an alarm unless you're doing it in the morning and you have to be to work in 30 minutes. You have to leave out of the door in 30 minutes. Okay, set your alarm. That's what you've got to do. But in the evenings or on the weekends, times where you don't need to do that, it's best to not set an alarm. Because when you set an alarm, the mind's either going to be in meditation thinking, is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? This is craving desire attachment. You're trying to transform the mind away from that. So if you set an alarm, the mind oftentimes has a tendency to sit there and crave the end of meditation. So that's one thing that will end up happening. The other thing that will end up happening is if you set an alarm, you can be really deep in meditation, getting all kinds of benefit, 
and the next thing that goes is eh, 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 the alarm goes off. When if you didn't set the alarm, you could have gotten so much more benefit. So in situations where you don't need an alarm, don't use one. The way that you time your meditations and know whether you're getting to 30 minutes or longer is about once a week, once every two weeks, look at the time before you go into meditation. Okay, eight or nine or 10 or whatever, and then meditate. And then when you're done meditating, take another casual look at the clock and see how long did you meditate for? And that's how you'll know how long you meditated. But you only need to do that like once a week, once every two weeks, just to ensure that you're getting up to 30 minutes and or beyond. You don't need to be obsessive about the time. Because in reality, if you started meditating and say you're three to five minutes into your meditation and your child walks in and says, mom, dad, you got to take me to school. And it's like, oh, I thought you were going to walk today or I thought you're dad or your mom was going to take you. So even that three to five minutes, there was some benefit there. Ideally, you would like to consistently on an ongoing basis, get two to three for 30 minutes or more. But even in that three minutes or that five minutes, there was some benefit there. So don't be obsessed about the time. Just know that you're gradually working towards two to three sessions of 30 minutes or more. If you notice any sleepiness during meditation, there's a couple of different approaches you can take here. One is you can just go to sleep. Maybe the mind needs a rest. Maybe you haven't been sleeping very well. Maybe the mind's too tired and it's not really the best time to meditate. So just go to sleep. That's one option. The other option is that you could do standing or walking meditation to kind of invigorate the mind and extend your meditation sessions. So if you're noticing any sleepiness come in during your meditation, those are two different ways that you can address it. If you notice any physical sensations in the body during meditation, if the mind goes there, just cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath. So if you're in meditation and you feel like a little itch somewhere, the tendency is the mind's gonna wanna itch it because the mind craves permanent comfort. It wants this physical body to be permanently comfortable. It's not content with feeling this little bit of an itch. So the mind's gonna wanna itch. And then as soon as you itch that one, then there's gonna be another one, and then there's gonna be another one, and another one, and another one. So instead, when you are in meditation and you observe this little itch in the body and it arises, it's gonna change and then it's gonna fade away because it's impermanent. So just focus the mind on the breath and just keep focusing it on the breath. But if you go eight seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, and this itch is just so intense, it's like your mind is just, you know, you know, screaming at you, okay, go ahead and itch it, right? But now next time, try to extend that longer. So if it was 10 seconds, now next time try to go 15, 20, or 30. And eventually you'll get to the point where you won't need to stop and itch like that. And you'll just be able to continue to go in your meditation. But if you notice any pain during meditation, any physical pain, then take corrective action. Because if the knee is feeling pain, this is the knee saying, hey, there's something wrong here. And if you stay in that position, you might be doing some long-term damage to the knee or the ankle or the hip. So change positions. There's no rewards given out for sitting in a painful position 
for 30 minutes in meditation. Nobody's going to give you an award for that. So wherever you observe that the body is painful, just shift the knee, shift the hip, maybe switch to lying, switch to standing, switch to walking, whatever it is. You can switch your body positionings as you go, and then this will just help the body to maintain that comfortable position. Not luxurious, not painful, but comfortable. If you experience any visual stimulation during meditation, like some people see different colors of lights, like white lights, green lights, purple. You might have images from your past come in. You might even see some hellish beings. You might see some heavenly beings, things like this that are going on. This is all normal as the mind's awakening. Just cut that stuff off, let it go, and come back to the breath. It's normal that as the mind awakens, it starts to experience all this different imagery and it starts to show you the real power of the mind and how powerful this mind is. And you can experience some visual stimulation. So as that's happening, just realize that it's normal. You don't have to run out and ask everybody, you know, what does orange mean? I saw orange color in my meditation. Does that mean I'm special? Am I a special person because I saw orange in my meditation? I must be so special, right? No, everybody has those experiences. It's completely normal. Don't let the ego come in and try to convince you that you're somehow so special because you saw these different colors. Just cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. And then if you have any kind of external things, some people have been taught to meditate with beads or candles or even music or gongs or all of these different things, even like a special scent in the room. If you would like to use these things occasionally, go ahead. It's up to you. But 80 to 90% of your meditation practice should just be the body, the mind, and the breath. Nothing else. Because if you can strip down your meditation practice where it's just the body, the mind, and the breath, then you can meditate anywhere at any time because you'll always have what you need. You'll always have the body, the mind, and the breath in this life for the rest of this life. But if you base your meditation on having a certain music, certain app, certain beads, certain candle, certain scents, you're just stacking up all the criteria that you're training your mind. Like you can't meditate unless you have all this stuff. You need all this stuff or else you can't meditate. So now when you travel around the world, when you go to different people's houses, if you don't have all this stuff, then you're not gonna meditate because you don't have your gong, your favorite beads, your favorite candle, your favorite music, your favorite app. These are just attachments that the mind's gonna build in. So let all that stuff go and train the mind to just focus on the body, the mind, and the breath. Having those three things, if you have those with you, then you'll be able to actually meditate and you won't need all this stuff. So even if you're doing those things now, gradually move the mind away from needing all this stuff and just use the body, the mind, and the breath. So what questions do you guys have on this? Well, about the physical sensations, some people share that we can use pain in the body to train the mind to face the painful life or the tough life in our daily life. Do you agree with this? I don't agree with this because I've experienced that, but also Gautama Buddha experienced it too. During the lifetime of the Buddha, when he first left the palace, for two years, he trained with two different teachers. And they were teaching these aesthetic practices of harshness, of hanging yourself upside down from trees, piercing the body with metal implements, laying on a bed of nails, all these different things. 
And they thought at that time that if you can overcome the physical pain in the body, that that will produce enlightenment. Well, today, people are misunderstanding that the Buddha stopped doing those things. He even starved himself to the brink of death, thinking that that is what was going to produce enlightenment. And he had the realization that if he disparaged this physical body and he caused harm to this physical body, then it's going to die. And the mind isn't going to be able to be trained because the mind's going to separate from the body. So he needed to maintain this life and he needed to maintain this physical body in good working order in order for him to be able to keep the mind in this life and be able to train it. So if you've been taught or you've seen people share to just breathe through the pain and kind of grin and bear it, this isn't the way that the Buddha taught. That's not the middle way. The Buddha always taught the middle way. So painful is one side of the spectrum. Luxurious is the other side. The middle is comfort. So there's no benefit in just grinning and bearing it through the pain because that pain is there for a reason to tell us something's wrong, that there's something wrong in the joint, there's some cartilage that's having problems, there's circulation that isn't happening. And if we just sit through that stuff, it's disparaging the body. It's not showing loving kindness and compassion to this being who you are right now. And in order to attain enlightenment, you need to have loving kindness and compassion for all beings, including this being. So if you just sit and grin and bear the pain, you're actually going to be not having loving kindness and compassion for this being. And you're kind of reverting back to what the Buddha realized doesn't actually work, which is disparaging the body and putting it in pain. So if he discovered it didn't work, and then I'm sharing with you it doesn't work too, then if you do it, okay, go ahead and do it. It's up to you. But just understand that that's not the way to get to enlightenment is to put the body into painful situations. So uh, life is tough, and it seems that it will permanently be tough, right? Even after attaining enlightenment, right? This is not true. So life is a struggle. Life is very difficult. As long as the mind is unenlightened, you're going to experience struggles and difficulties. As you gain more wisdom in these teachings, in your eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance, the knowing of true reality, you'll slowly see the struggles and difficulties of life start to diminish. But in those situations where the mind is struggling and having difficulties, that's where it's working the hardest to gain wisdom. And you would like to be able to gain as much wisdom in that difficulty as you can. Because if you don't gain all the wisdom that you need, that situation is going to repeat because you're in this cycle. You're in this cycle of rebirth and all these situations are just going to keep repeating over and over and over again until you learn the wisdom that you need to transcend that. So if you've had difficult relationships with a man or a woman, a significant partner, and your first relationship was really difficult, and then your second one was difficult, your third one was difficult, and you continue to have difficulties with having a partner, this is because you haven't quite learned what it is that you need in each one of those situations. Things might have slowly gotten better to select an improved partner, but you're not gaining the wisdom that you need in these situations, and that's why you keep having difficulties over and over. Or if you're having difficulties at your job, or you're having difficulties with your children or other things like this, these are going to keep repeating over and over until you gain the wisdom that you need. Once you gain the wisdom, 
and you're eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance, then the mind moves to this enlightened mind and you understand this world that you live in and the mind's no longer struggling. It's no longer having difficulties because you understand the world. You've eliminated all the pollution and instead of operating through craving, anger, and ignorance, you're operating through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And now with this generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, which are the exact opposites of craving, anger, and ignorance, now with this generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, you're making decisions through generosity, giving and sharing. You're no longer selfish and having cravings. You're practicing generosity. You're no longer anger, hatred, and ill will. You're now practicing loving kindness for all beings. And you no longer have this ignorance or unknowing of true reality, but you have this wisdom that comes into the mind and you're able to now function in the world with ease and with peacefulness. But when you lack those things, when you're lacking generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, you're still functioning through craving, anger, and ignorance. And this is why life is such a struggle and life is difficult. With the enlightened mind, life is completely easy. There's still going to be some challenges that come up. I have challenges and other people have challenges in the world, but you have the tools, you have the generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom in which to address this situation and address this challenge. You're no longer functioning through craving, anger, and ignorance, which is putting out harm in the world, so therefore harm is coming back to you. Instead, you're putting out generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And by putting that out, then you experience an ease about life. You're still going to experience impermanence when the mind is enlightened, but your mind is fully trained in understanding of impermanence. So therefore, you can just ebb and flow with that so easily because it's just a common thing. It's just normal for you because your mind is so well-versed in these teachings that it's first nature for you to know that impermanence is going to happen. And now you can function at ease without the struggles and difficulties. You'll have challenges. Now you might look at it as like, I've got this problem. Oh, this problem. It's so difficult. I've got this problem. Well, as you evolve and you train the mind more, you don't see things as problems. You see them as challenges. You have this challenge and you know that this challenge is impermanent. It's only a matter of bringing the right amount of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And by applying these things to this situation, this challenge is going to be resolved. It's temporary, where when we have a problem, we hit a brick wall, we feel like we're bogged down in the mud, we don't have the wisdom we need to solve this problem, and we think this problem is going to be permanent, And we just kind of feel this heavy weight on our shoulders because we don't have the wisdom that we need of how to address this situation. But as we evolve and we no longer look at things as problems with this craving, anger, and ignorance, we look at it as a challenge. And now it's just a matter of finding the right amount of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom to place into this situation with this challenge. We know that that's going to be resolved. It's just a matter of time and bringing that wisdom into the situation. So we'll still face challenges as enlightened beings, but we'll have all the tools we need in which to resolve those challenges. Thanks, sir. No more questions. All right. And the last thing I'll share before we actually do meditation together is that you should never, ever, ever, ever give up on your meditation practice. There's going to be those challenges. There's going to be those difficulties. There's going to be times where the mind is bombarded with lots of thoughts. 
There's going to be times where the mind is completely peaceful and you're like, oh my goodness, this is so great. And then tomorrow, boom, here comes the bombardment of all kinds of thoughts again. And you're going to feel like, oh my goodness, I have to go through this again. Yeah, you're in this cycle. You have to keep going through this over and over and over again until the mind learns what it needs to learn. So even when you feel that peacefulness come into the mind, don't grab onto it and cling onto it and crave it because that peacefulness that you experience is temporary until you get to enlightenment and then it's going to be permanent. So even though you're going to have this back and forth, this peacefulness, this bombardment of thoughts, this peacefulness, this bombardment of thought, don't give up. Or even when you first start, it's just going to be bombardment of thoughts, bombardment of thoughts, bombardment of thoughts, bombardment of thoughts. Don't give up because this is the escape. If you're not interested in experiencing discontentedness anymore in your life, if you're tired of the sadness, if you're tired of the loneliness and the boredom, if you're tired of the guilt and shame, this is the solution. This is the way to escape that. But if you give up, you're never going to be able to experience that. So even in those difficult, challenging times, don't ever give up. The words of the Buddha on this is, he says that when you encounter the struggle, don't shrink back from the struggle. Don't shrink back from the struggle because it's the struggle that you're gaining the wisdom. If the mind is just peaceful, then okay, it's content. It's got everything that you need. But when you feel that struggle and that difficulty, that's because the mind's doing work. It doesn't have the wisdom that it needs. So don't shrink back from that struggle. Walk towards the struggle. Oftentimes when we're struggling, we want to run away from it because we have aversion. We want to run away from the struggle. We want to push it away. But what I encourage you to do is turn around and walk towards the struggle. And then when you're walking towards the struggle, that means you're not shrinking back from it. You're walking towards it. And now you can gain the wisdom that you need to address that situation so that it won't happen again. So if you're in that situation and you're feeling the struggle and you want to run, that means you're going to experience that same thing over and over and over again. But if you walk towards the struggle, you address it and you gain the wisdom that you need in that struggle. Now you have a better chance of that never occurring again because you've developed the wisdom that you need to ensure that it never happens again. If you run from the struggle, if you shrink back from the struggle, you're ensuring that it will happen again because you don't have the wisdom of how to address that situation. So walk towards the struggle. Never give up. When the mind is having struggles and difficulties, that's when it's doing the most amount of work and that's when it's gaining the most amount of wisdom. So keep that going. Don't shrink back from the struggle. And remember the first words that I shared today that are Gautama Buddha's words. Meditate monks or meditate students. Do not be complacent lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So don't shrink back from the struggle or else you're going to regret it later. Don't be complacent, but find that middle where you're meditating on a regular, consistent basis, gradually building up your practice. So I'll just see if you guys have any final questions on this refresh, and then we can do kind of a, a nice little meditation together. Not seeing any questions, teacher, now. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get in meditation position so that we can meditate together as we normally do and just kind of clear the mind and actually do a breathing mindfulness meditation session. So typically you're going to be doing this in the seated position. So go ahead and find a seated position. 
where you're either on the floor with maybe a cushion under your rear and your legs crossed, just lightly crossed so that it keeps the circulation. Or in the chair, you might just have your lower body in the chair with your feet either flat on the floor or maybe crossed at the ankles, up to you. It's not about everybody doing it exactly the same. It's about you finding the position that works best for you. Find that comfort, not luxurious and not painful, but comfortable. Your hands and arms should be resting comfortably in your lap. The Buddha placed his right hand on top of his left with his thumbs together, and then he put that in his lap. But if that isn't comfortable for you, then don't do that. You can put your palms on your thighs, your palms on your knees. You can put your, your arms on the armrest of a chair. Essentially, your lower body and the hands and arms should be completely at ease. There shouldn't be no engagement of muscles at all, just completely relaxed. Your upper body, you should have your spine erect, not real rigid and tense, but not slouched either. It should be in the middle. So engage your spine so that the muscles are engaged in your upper body, your body is erect and straight. This will help keep the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Whereas if you were slouched, the mind's gonna have a tendency to be inactive. Or if you are real uptight and rigid, the mind's gonna be overactive. So that's why you would like to have the upper body in the middle where the muscles are engaged and active to keep the mind attentive and alert during your meditation. Next, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Just a nice, steady, natural breath. Breathing in and out. Nice, gradual breath. Breathing in through the nose, wherever you get to that breath. Experiencing the full breath. And then whenever you're ready, because this is your practice, exhale out through the nose. Your breath isn't going to necessarily sync up with the guidance that I'm giving. So just wherever you get to the next inhale, breathe in through the nose. And exhale through the nose. Breathing in. And out. Continuing with the breath. Focus the mind on the breath the sound of the air coming into the nose, or the sensation of air moving into the nose. Fixate the mind on the breath. This is the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in and out. With the mind fixated on the breath, wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, 
cut that off, let it go. And bring the mind back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in. In, out. With the mind fixated on the breath, whenever there's thoughts, ideas, perceptions, whenever the mind would like to go to the past or the future, wherever you observe that, you cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. I'm going to let you do this work now so that the mind doesn't even hold on to this voice. No need to label the thoughts, judge the thoughts, or even observe the thoughts. Wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, you cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. You have nowhere to go, There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in, in, out.
share something with you guys as you're making your way out of meditation is uh you know just like we clean the body every day and we find a lot of benefit in doing that we need to also clean our mind every day that's what you need to be thinking about is just like you enjoy having a fresh body you enjoy having a fresh mouth when you brush your teeth you're going to also enjoy having a very clean mind and So far, if your mind is not yet enlightened, the mind is polluted. And meditation is the way to eliminate that pollution and clean out the mind. So if you think of it that way, then each day you might have a tendency to to meditate and do that regularly and see that as very beneficial and very helpful for your life. But also, just like when we were a child and we were learning how to take a shower, It was probably a good 8, 9, 10, 12 years that our parents had to constantly remind us, go take a shower, go take a shower, 
go take a shower, go take a shower. And then eventually we started realizing at some point that we really enjoy taking a shower and that was beneficial for our life and that we should make that decision on our own. And we started making that decision on our own. Well, now you don't have your parents to tell you to meditate, 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 meditate. Instead, you have to have that inner discipline, that inner energy, that determination, that enthusiasm, that motivation. You have to arise that in the mind and decide that this is what you would like to do is you're no longer interested in living with this polluted mind, but instead you would like to now clean up the mind and experience what it's like to live with a mind that's completely clean. You've never experienced that in your life or any other life either. That's why we continue to exist in this cycle of rebirth. This is why we continue to have discontentedness because we haven't yet figured out how to fully clean out the mind. But by doing that on a regular basis and never giving up, like I shared, then you'll be able to see the benefits in it as the discontentedness gradually diminishes and eventually the mind comes into this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. And you'll really thank yourself for all the effort and all the work that you ultimately get to enlightenment. And even prior to that, experiencing the peacefulness that you experience, even for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, as you're making your way to enlightenment, and it's not completely permanent yet, but you'll experience these elongated periods of time where the mind is peaceful, you'll really thank yourself for having dedicated time, effort, energy, and resources to meditating and for pursuing this path. So I'll just open up to see if you guys have any remaining questions before we end today's class. I'll just turn things over to you guys. You can ask questions through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand to ask any questions. That's good, Amanda. Uh, yes, sir. On Facebook, Kaylee asks, how do you come out of meditation slowly? You just gradually kind of open your eyes slowly, kind of like you're waking up in the morning. You know, you just kind of gradually open your eyes. You kind of gradually move the body around and just kind of gradually come back rather than just popping out of meditation. It's kind of too jarring for the mind to do that. So you just kind of gradually ease out of meditation. And that's why I like to use chanting to ease into meditation and then use chanting to ease out of meditation, which is something that I teach as part of this program. And that really helps to kind of bring the mind back. But even still after chanting, sometimes you can be so deep into it that you just kind of need to sit there for a few moments and just kind of move the head around, open the eyes slowly and just kind of come back to uh, where you're at in your daily life. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thanks, teacher. That's all for today. All right. Well, next week we're going to be doing essentially something a bit similar in terms of going through loving kindness meditation and describing all the various aspects of loving kindness meditation and being sure that I refresh you guys on loving kindness meditation. And then we'll actually do loving kindness together. Usually teaching you loving kindness meditation, it's only kind of like 30 minutes or so, maybe 45 minutes, and then we'll go right into loving kindness meditation. So that is what we'll do next week. And then we have two more weeks after that where we'll just be doing breathing mindfulness and just loving kindness. So I'm doing this refresh now, and then we'll have you know, additional weeks to just kind of come to class and do breathing mindfulness and loving kindness. So we've got another three meditation sessions as part of this group learning program before we restart all over again. 
This Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 24, which is titled Misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's Teachings. Now that I've been sharing all these teachings throughout the last six or seven months, now's a good time to talk about a lot of the misunderstandings that you're going to see throughout the world as you interact in different environments, whether it's in Facebook, on social media, whether you go to various temples, whether you go and converse or you pick up even books of authors that have been writing about these teachings that haven't necessarily based their practice on the words of the Buddha, you will see all kinds of different misunderstandings related to the Buddhist teachings. But when you base your practice on the words of the Buddha, then you know what he truly taught and what he didn't teach. So now that I've spent six or seven months teaching you what he taught, now I'm going to share with you in just this one chapter 24 on Sunday, the misunderstandings, the real common ones that you'll see and that are the most detrimental to your practice. That if you actually learned these and you thought this was the truth, if you believed these things, it would actually hinder you from enlightenment. But by you learning what the misunderstandings are, I'm not just going to say this is a misunderstanding, this is a misunderstanding. I'm going to explain to you why. And in some cases, I'm going to be using the words of the Buddha to show you how what a lot of people talk about in certain venues that hears the words of the Buddha so that you can see directly that what's being shared in certain venues is in direct contrast to what he actually taught. And this will actually help you to more clearly see the path of exactly what the path is. Because if you had all these misunderstandings, then you're going to have confusion in the mind. And this is another way that we refer to that ignorance or that unknowing of true reality. We refer to it as delusion or confusion or misunderstanding, that the mind misunderstands the natural laws of existence. And by misunderstanding the natural laws of existence, thus misunderstanding Gautama Buddha's teachings, the mind's going to have a difficulty getting to enlightenment. So by helping you understand these misunderstandings through the words of the Buddha, then you'll be able to see the path much more clearly and be able to walk that path and actually experience the results of an enlightened mind. So you're welcome to join for next Wednesday and or this Sunday for either loving kindness meditation or learning about the misunderstandings of Gautama Buddha's teachings. So thank you all for joining for today's class. We'll see you in a future class. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sabadika. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.